I'd like to start uh, this morning um, chanting. Sitting here in this moment, protected by the Sangha, my happiness is clear and alive. What a great fortune to have been born a human, to encounter the Dharma, to be in harmony with others and to water the mind of love in this beautiful garden of practice. The energies of the Sangha and the mindfulness training are protecting and helping me not make mistakes or be swept along in darkness by unwholesome seeds with kind spiritual friends I am on the path of goodness Illumined by the light of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Although the seeds of suffering are still in me in the form of afflictions and habit energy, Mindfulness is also there, helping me to touch what is most wonderful within and around me. I can still enjoy mindfulness of the six senses. My eyes look peacefully upon a clear blue sky. My ears listen with wonder to the songs of birds. My nose smells the rich scent of sandalwood. My tongue tastes the nectar of the Dharma. My posture is upright, stable and relaxed. My mind is one with my body. If there were not a world honored one, if there were not the wonderful Dharma, if there were not the harmonious Sangha, I would not be so fortunate to enjoy this Dharma happiness today. My 
My resources for practice are my own peace and joy. I vow to cultivate and nourish them with daily mindfulness. For my ancestors, family, future generations, for the whole of humanity, I vow to practice well. In my society, I know that there are countless people suffering, drowned in sensual pleasures, in jealousy, in hatred. I am determined to take care of my own mental formations, to learn the art of deep listening and using loving speech, encouraging connection, acceptance, and love. Practicing the actions of a bodhisattva, I vow to look with eyes of love and a heart of understanding. I vow to listen with a clear mind and ears of compassion to bring peace and joy into the world, to lighten and alleviate the hardships and suffering of all living beings. I am aware that ignorance and wrong perceptions can quickly turn this world into a fiery hell. I vow to always walk upon the path of transformation, producing understanding and loving-kindness. I will be able to cultivate a garden of awakening. Though there are birth, sickness, old age and death. Now that I have a path, I've nothing more to fear. It is a great happiness to be alive in the Sangha with the mindfulness trainings and concentration to live each moment in stability and inner freedom, to support the Buddha's work of relieving others' suffering. In each precious moment I am filled with deep gratitude. I humbly ask the world honored one, Please bear witness to my wholehearted gratitude, embracing all beings with arms of compassion.
That's a chant called Nourishing Happiness. Uh, the text for it is in the chanting book, or at least the newer versions of the chanting book. Um, we'd also note that some small edits to language have been made over the years, and um, more current versions, hard to find unless you're really familiar with the text, hard to notice. Um, but there are more current versions of, of, of uh, some of the sutras and discourses and chants um, than uh, some of our older editions of the books have. And some of the small changes actually really help uh, to clarify uh, some of the subtle meanings in, in certain words, especially concepts that are translated from old languages that don't translate directly into English. Um, so um, one way to find that is to source your text from the Plum Village website itself. Um, most of the discourses in the chanting book, if not all, are actually available online through the Plum Village website. Um, but this quote you won't find on there. Uh, this is a really old quote, or at least translated into English, uh, offered many centuries ago by a, a Buddhist teacher and scholar named Nagarjuna. And Nagarjuna said that uh, practicing the immeasurable mind of equanimity extinguishes hatred, aversion, and attachment in the hearts of living beings. Practicing the immeasurable mind of equanimity extinguishes hatred, aversion, and attachment in the hearts of living beings. Um, there's nothing particularly profound about that statement, except that it, it says something very clearly, definitively, extinguishes, extinguishes. Um, I really like that. I really like that it, uh, our practice is given um, in that statement, it's, it's, it's given the weight that it really carries. Um, similarly, there is language at the, the beginning of the recitation of the mindfulness trainings. If you've ever participated in the recitation ceremonies for the mindfulness trainings, there's, a, there's an introductory paragraph. And uh, um, I don't have the text right in front of me right now, but it, it says definitively something like, um, Practicing interbeing can do away completely with right discrimination, fear, anger, intolerance, things like that. Right? It it really it says very clearly. It's not like oh, this is a little bit of step on the way. You can you can completely remove these obstacles with the practice. And it's kind of nice to have that when we're so saturated in millions of possibilities of how we can do this and do that and and just take a little here and take a little there and and never not never but maybe possibly not ever go quite deep with anything we're sampling to to really embody the practice of equanimity 
we can extinguish hatred, aversion, and attachment in our hearts and in the hearts of other living beings. It's a strong statement. To practice interbeing, we can we can not suffer uh, with the uh, uh, experiences of uh, loneliness, of um, overwhelm and stress. Uh, right? These things don't have to be there. Mm. We can be free of uh, discrimination and anger, or at least the suffering of those things. Um, another thing that is interesting about that statement from Nagarjuna is that it puts on the one hand the experiences of aversion and attachment, and on the other, uh, the equanimity. Right, so they're really you see how they're really not the same thing. These are these are different, very different experiences, uh, almost opposites. Some people would say, you know, like the enemy or near enemy of right. But you have this uh, balance uh, created there: the energy of grasping and attachment, or anxiety and fear, the aversion. That experience on the one hand, and the experience of equanimity on the other, kind of they, they are a balance of each other. And when I think of aversion and attachment, grasping and attachment, and this tensing, this um, this this tension, which is part of that experience, um, it brings me to the experience again, coming back to this this experience of relaxing and letting go as the medicine for it, as the balancing for it. Um, so letting go is a huge part of that, that experience of releasing, of letting go is a huge part of upeksha, of equanimity, of having a, a heart which is capable of embracing a lot, of having a peace inside of us. We have to be able to let go, uh, to loosen the grip, to soften the grip of our, of our, uh, our habit energy of of holding on. Um, so uh, in Buddhism, the energy of grasping and attachment, look at me, I've got a clipboard here. I uh, wrote something down, it's kind of like a whiteboard, but I'm going to hold it up close to the camera. But the experience of grasping and attachment is divided into four different categories. Uh, this is the grasping and attachment we experience in sense pleasures, sense pleasures or sensory experiences. They're not always pleasurable, I guess, but they tend to be called sense pleasures or sensory experiences. That's the one. The second is the grasping and attachment in the realm of views and ideas, things that we the ideas we have about ourselves or about the world or about things we understand that other people don't understand as well, right? Like that kind of a attachment I have. Uh, the attachment and grasping to rights, 
and rituals is how it's classically portrayed, but this also refers to norms, like norms in society. Um, and uh, the attachment and grasping in relationship to the self, the idea of a self as an entity. So like, I don't know if this is going to come out in focus or not, but there, how's that look? One, two, three, four, kind of get it in front of the camera. We just wrote them down so it'd be on the record. Very simple. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, uh, it's pretty easy to, to understand um, the first two, the being attached to uh, um, pleasurable experiences, right? Or having aversion to unpleasant experiences in the senses, right? Uh, and settling into comfort in the, in the, physical senses, yeah. uh, and always seeking that, right? Seeking that. Uh, and there's, there's a particular amount of uh, attachment which arises very quickly in that realm. I think we all can experience that in different ways, but, but maybe, maybe in a lot of shared ways too. Um, the attachment and grasping that's part of views and ideas is also one that we've all met someone who's convinced that they're right and they're trying to bring us on board with their way. And we've all been that person too, <laughs> whether we spoke that those words or whether we just thought them, right? But, but our attachment to our ideas and our views about things can be very strong and actually when it becomes uh, something that's shared and collective, that's another dimension to this grasping and attachment, when it becomes something shared, where a group of us believe the same thing, right, then uh, uh, it can be quite dangerous. Um, in the third realm, this rites and rituals, what I wrote as norms, also in habits, um, because there are, uh, in, in terms of a, uh, religious practice and spiritual practice there there are forms and rituals and rites that one can become attached to and that's how it was presented in the old texts so that uh, you you would be encouraged not to get too attached to your your way or your traditions way right of doing things but to keep an open mind but this also goes for us in 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 the lay world sort of outside of being fully immersed in religion and religious life uh, in the lay world there are many norms in in society that we are highly attached to um, and that cause a lot of suffering um, and and if you think about it uh, there are uh, a lot of ways that that uh, we assume people are supposed to be in our modern society in, a, in at least this is the, the way that we've grown up right like we assume this is this is normal, right? But it may not be the experience that everyone has, and holding on to, grasping on to, uh, 
norms uh, can cause a lot of suffering. It could also be very supportive and helpful in some situations, but too much holding and it becomes oppressive. Uh, like I experienced a tremendous amount of, of um, anxiety and pain um, dropping out of college. I am my college dropout. Yes. Um, and uh, when I left college, uh, there was this uh, experience of the norm, right? That I'm, you know, that I'm breaking away from the norm, going against what is normal or desired, and the attachment of my family and my society to these ideas, uh, to these practices of having a certain progression of education. And I still encounter that to this day in, in, in the world, um, being that I'm in a position where I share a lot, I, I you know, teach, but I don't have any credentials to teach. And I, I experience very clear um, judgment from other people around that, people who have their, their rows of uh, credentials lined up and, and have an attachment to that way, that that is a presentation that I am smart, that I am together, that I've accomplished, right? And so there's a lot of uh, safety and security in that. And then when, when I'm in that space, I, I'm very aware that I'm not fitting that mold. And, and if I'm attached to my not having that, then I suffer. And if the other person is attached to having that, then they can suffer, right? And that's the idea with this practice, is just to illuminate that the degree to which we're holding on to our sense pleasures, our ideas, our norms and rituals, our idea about ourselves, the degree to which we are grasping, how tightly we are grasping, is commensurate. It's, the, it's equal to the amount of suffering we're going to experience. So the tighter I hold on, the more I'm going to suffer. The more I'm attached, the more I'm going to suffer. So the idea here is not necessarily to be free of these things. Like It's not to live a life free of sense pleasures, or free of ideas, or free of shared uh, experiences, or free of being myself, right? It's, it's I'm free of the attachment to those things, right? So just, just like really, really watch that when you practice letting go in these, in these realms. Because it's easy to get caught in in um, uh, and go to go try try to go too far, and then we're we're caught in an idea about our liberation, right? <laughs> we're caught in a practice of liberation, and it's not really going to liberate us from our suffering. Mm. There's a, a a slight distinction I'd like to make too. That's really fun to to look at. Uh, at least I think it is, uh, where these these words indicate slightly different energies. Like, for example, craving, the energy of craving. We might have craving in, in relationship to sense pleasures, right? Uh, certain foods or tastes, right? You might have craving for those things. Or you might crave certain experiences or certain relationships or certain experiences in certain relationships. And this is a kind of a seeking energy, and this is the same, this is the same story. We can have it in all these different layers, but it's a seeking, a longing for, a wanting something that we don't have, right? That craving energy. I want that. I long for that. 
this is the same thing. I, I long, I want for this pleasure, for this safety, for this security, for this, for these, these things to be just like that, so that I can rely on them. For myself to be uh, a certain way, have a certain health, have a certain reputation, have a certain respect and love. Right? I long for that, and that's one dimension of this. I'm wanting. I'm seeking. I'm looking for. I'm needing. And then there's the other one, which is the attachment and the holding on to, right? So I've got it, and I'm not going to let it go. <laughs> um, so think about it like um, a massage, right? A massage, like receiving a massage. A massage is a, uh, can be a very pleasant experience to have. Um, can be a little painful too, but uh, if it's a if it's if it's if it's in a safe situation, a massage, the sensory experience of the massage can be very pleasant. And that contact, right, can be can be really pleasant. The release of tension and stress in the body helped by a massage can be can be wonderful. So like just thinking about that, I'm starting to want it. <laughs> I'm like, I wish there was somebody here right now to rub my shoulders, right? You know, like like I want that experience because I've had it before. I long for it. I want it or 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 I I desire a kind of release from the stress I feel in my body, right? So I want, I long for it. And then if you were to be here and be rubbing my shoulders, I would not want you to go. I will, I'm a, now I'm attached to that experience. I don't want you to stop. Um, I have been known to say when receiving a massage that I could just live there for the rest of my life. I wouldn't need to eat or drink, just keep me in this state of receiving this sensory experience. Um, yeah. Mm. An intimate relationship is another area that a lot of us get caught in. We are wanting, we are seeking, we are looking for that condition, the other person who will be the perfect fit, the right match, the companion, the partner, right? For the part of us which feels somehow incomplete longing for completion, longing for that thing that we believe we are not, that we do not have. And, and our, our, our fairy tales and our Disney films and our everything like that all through our life have been reinforcing these ideas. And, and so it's, it's also a cultural norm, right? That, that one, one is in a way um, meant to do this, right? To partner up and to have the right relationship and 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 so when we don't have it we are wanting it and we're seeking for it and when we have it we're holding on tight and trying to possess it and in both situations there is a tremendous amount of suffering depending on how much we're longing for and feeling incomplete or how much we're holding on and wreaking havoc on the real connection because we're not willing to change and let go and right uh, there's a, a lot of suffering that happens even when you have these things and you're holding on and you're attached to them and there's a lot of fear in losing because you believe you have something that's in that's needed that's necessary you don't want to lose it right? you don't want to let it go that's attachment. That's craving. That's grasping. It's attachment, these things. These are not practice of having equanimity. 
So it's not having a spacious, loving, open heart. It's having a contracted, grabbing onto the self and my needs and my wants heart. Mm. Positive outcome is another thing. I want a positive outcome. Like when my child was is going through uh, injury and illness, I really want that to resolve in a good way. And if I'm really, the more I'm holding on to that idea and that desire, the more I'm attached to this desire, this I'm craving for a positive outcome in her illness, right? I want it to resolve well. The more I'm doing that, the more I'm going to suffer. And the more I'm going to be unable to see all of the subtle shifts and changes that are actually really beautiful, all the growing and the learning that's happening. Because I'm stuck on an idea of what she's supposed to be and not where she actually is. And she might end up going in a completely different direction and it could be incredibly beautiful and powerful life that she'll live. But because I think she's supposed to look like this, sound like this, walk like this, move like this, I see it as dysfunctional and I'm suffering. Right? I see it as disease and I'm, and I'm suffering. Right? So my attachment to a certain positive outcome there is going to bring me a lot of suffering and might bring our, our relationship a lot of suffering. Yeah. So I practiced early on, you know, when my sister had, not my sister, my daughter had this brain injury. Um, I, I practiced early on to connect with the work I did earlier in my life. I lived and worked in, a, in a social rehab uh, centers and also in communities for uh, folks with developmental disabilities. And I grew very quickly to, to see that um, people manifested in all different shapes, sizes, and ways and capacities. There wasn't one way it was supposed to be, right? And that each one of them, if given the right conditions, if, if they have the right supportive conditions, can really blossom and flower in the most amazing way and be the deepest and most powerful teachers and human beings, even though they can't function in the technical way that our modern society asks, right? And, I, and so I was going to that experience in my heart to be like, I have no idea how my daughter is going to turn out on the other side of this. I really don't. don't know if she's going to recover her the capacities she had in her brain before and her to function in her body the way she could before. I don't know that. And I wanted to connect with her as she is and what she's going through and to make a space so that however she came out of it, I'm like going to be all there still and without judgment and without um, evaluating her condition, but with that full acceptance. Um, it's made going through it much easier, much easier. Um, allows for patience and space. Allows for equanimity. It's just letting go, right? Letting go of my attachments creates that equanimity, that space in which I can truly meet her. Um, yeah. The same thing with a situation in the world. We see a situation of violence and oppression in the world, and we want a positive outcome. We don't want it to be so horrible, right? And yet, the more we attach ourselves to a particular idea of what should be happening, right? 
the less we will be able to perceive the subtle layers and the conditions that built up that suffering in the first place and be able to work, right, to, to transform it. Mm. So, I've, yeah, I've been practicing that on that, watch, watching my, my desire for positive outcome, <clears throat> my attachment to it. And this goes along really well with our practice of making space for suffering in general. Like most of us, we just don't want to suffer. Nobody wants to suffer, right? <laughs> you don't want to be in pain. You don't want to have a hard time. And that's, that's understandable. It's natural. But our, our practice is asking us to acknowledge that that's actually a part of life. Hardship and challenge and suffering. Changes that are really big sometimes and changes that are really hard sometimes are, are a part of how things move and interact and we learn and we grow. And so we're making that space for that to happen. Hmm. Hmm. So in my experience of what Nagarjuna is presenting there, that, that our practice of equanimity can really, can really um, heal this, this kind of this, this suffering of attachment and craving and grasping and aversion, hatred. Uh, for me, it really leans also on this dimension of understanding and a particular kind of understanding. The understanding of uh, impermanence and interbeing. The understanding that any entity, anything that we perceive uh, is always in a, in a state of transformation, change. That's impermanence. Nothing ever stays the same in two consecutive moments, right? It's like trying to watch that river flow, right? You can never reach out and touch it the same river, right? One moment to the next, right? That's, everything is actually like that. A river is a wonderful, strong, powerful example of it, but, but everything is actually like that. Everything is in this constant uh, evolution, changing, changing, and changing. So that's, that's impermanence. And learning to make space for that in the way we think. We call that using the eyes of impermanence. Right? The way I look at, at myself, at you, at, at situations in the world, I'm going to look for and I'm going to look with right, the eyes of impermanence in order to help create that space and loosen the grip of my attachment. Because think of the river, right? I want the river, it's so beautiful, I'm going to reach out and take it, but it goes right through my fingers, right? It's, it's always moving. I need, I need instead to sort of become the flow of the river, to really know the river, right? I have to become it. Um, and that means I have to let go, right? I have to let go into that flow. So using the eyes of impermanence, to look for and look with change, transformation, and also to look with the, the, the eyes of interbeing, which is to see that there is nothing we can take as an object of our perception. There's nothing that we can look at that is, is itself alone. It's just, it's just that. Everything is made of so many other things. In fact, like the way we've been talking about it during the retreat a lot is I myself 
am a continuation and a transformation of all of humanity and the ancestors, right? Like this transmission of ancestors generation to generation. This, that's, that's one way of looking at interbeing. Of course, it's looking through the lens of time and impermanence, things changing, but it's also seeing that I am not me alone. I am, I am made, I'm not a separate thing. I'm made of all these other aspects, all these other conditions. Uh, so I, I, I look with and I look for interbeing, right? Uh, and when I use eyes of impermanence and interbeing, it makes it so much easier to let go, to loosen my grip. And it shows me that to let go is not to lose, right? And that's a big fear we have. So when we let go of something, we will lose it. But the eyes of impermanence and interbeing show us that we never really had it in the first place. And we aren't even someone who can have. We're not, we're not, it's not, it's not like it's mine, right? If I'm holding something, who's actually holding, right? Who's actually holding that? Is it my mother, my father? Is it both of them? Is it my grandparents? Is it, is it my teachers, my friends? Is it the breakfast that I ate this morning? Right? Where, who, 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 who is that, right? That is doing that holding, right? So if I don't even, if, if it's not actually, if I can't even really possess it because I'm not even a possessor. It's not really me, right? Then how can I lose it, right? So it makes letting go so much easier to look with the eyes of impermanence and interbeing. We lose our fear. We lose the attachment and the grasping and the fear. But what's left when you open your heart and you make that space, when you really let go of the person that you love and you let them be just as they are, however they are, what's left, they are still there. And the opportunity to meet them in a new and fresh and enlivened way is there. When I entered the monastery, I had to let go of my relationship to my most treasured person, to this fern, right? I had to release that, I had to let her go. And it really burned me alive. I was so upset about it when I was contemplating it. For weeks and weeks and weeks, I could not really let go. I wanted to somehow figure out a way that she and I could still be something special, <laughs> right? That, it, that, that what was incomplete in me could still be completed by being with her, right? That, that all of the, the pleasure and the joy of being together with another person could continue even if she became a nun. But there's really no way that that can happen. And so I was in a was sort of in a, in a corner, backed into a corner. They're like, oh, no. And every direction I looked, I was looking. At, Maybe it could be like this. Maybe it could be like that. And eventually what I had to do is just drop in and be like, Michael, practice. Practice to open your heart and really honor and respect this potential, this possibility that, that she could live her life in that way and don't possess it don't hold it and in doing so i open my heart i shed all my attachment and my my um uh 
my dependency on on her. I was releasing that, and it made a space to experience her in a whole new way, right? Her as a as a completely different being, not the not not as a being that fills some void in me, which is a self-oriented, right, an attachment to myself. I need you in my life because you make me feel complete. That's not really loving the other person. That's that's loving me. It's taking care of me and my needs. But it made this space for me to be able to say, wow, here's another being and I can really freely love her, right? Without my attachment, without my clinging, without my needs being imposed upon the, the relationship, I'm going to let her go. And I tell you, that becomes really pleasant. It became so pleasant that eventually we both ended up outside of the monastery and are still enjoying that that great freedom of, <laughs> of letting each other be whole human beings as we are and, and learning to take care of ourselves in a way so that not just this one person is going to meet those needs in me, but I can, I can feel my heart fulfilled by contemplating my breakfast. I can feel my heart fulfilled by going for a walk in the forest, by holding a child, by talking to you, and feeling connected to my Sangha siblings all over the world, right? I feel the same sense of contentment and happiness, connection, that I do with her. Uh, it's interesting, right? There's that equanimity there. Um, you know, it, some people wouldn't want to hear that. Fern likes it. <laughs> some people wouldn't want to hear that. They wouldn't want to hear that they're not special to you, right? But that's really the direction that this, is, this, this practice asks us to go. It asks us to look for that true fulfillment, that true peace, that true happiness in our own hearts, being a part of life and making the space for others to be a part of life, too, right? Mm. But it's really looking with eyes of impermanence and interbeing that allows me to have the strength to, to do that kind of practice. I don't know if there's other ways that other people have discovered, but that, that for me, is really the ground. Um, and a deep level, meditating with interbeing and impermanence um, transforms this idea of the separate self. And I think that's really the heart of it for me. Like the meditation we did this morning on the four elements. Looking deeply to see that I am of earth, water, air, and fire, and, and being able to see those elements all around and see the non-separation in those elements. It's the same elements, right? Constantly changing and flowing. This, this transforms the idea that I am a separate body, Right? This body is manifesting in its miraculous way, but it is not separate from the body of Mother Earth and from all of you. Right? It's very clear when we practice those kinds of interbeing meditations. Mm. So these ancient habit energies of grasping and attachment transmitted to us by our ancestors and by our society right, are softened. They're opened up and new life can, can reveal itself in that space. Touching the earth works on that level. Um, singing songs like No Coming and No Going. No coming, no going, no after, no before. These are lines based on this kind of practice. 
right? No coming, no going is looking deeply to see that, right? I haven't arrived here, right? I've always been here in some form. I'm not going anywhere. It's, it's, it's already there, right? You're already there. No coming, no going. No after, no before. I hold you close to me. Right? It makes it so endearing and so lovely. It's personal and transcendental at the same time, right? No coming, no going, no after, no before. I hold you in that space. Close to me, and I can release you to be so free. Why? Because I am in you, and you are in me. Because I am in you, and you are in me. Right? That song is a meditation, right? On, on being myself, like really being, uh, experiencing this, what it is to be this unique uh, point of awareness in the world that I am, but, it, but the deep knowledge that I'm not separate. And in that space, I can hold you and I can let you go freely. When Tai passed away, what were the little stickers that everybody was passing, the little pins everyone was passing around, right? Coming and going in freedom. Right? Coming and going in freedom. It's looking with these deep eyes that we've been doing through the retreat that allow that coming and going in freedom to happen. Allow us to, uh, to make a space for both happiness and for suffering. And allow us to have a sense of peace and connection and compassion with the suffering and the happiness together. That's the equanimity. That's the really peaceful heart. Mm. And I kind of want to meditate with you on this for a, a moment, like to pull it in and do a little guided meditation. So as we settle in, listen to the sound of the bell, and then I will walk us through this meditation on the uh, touching upeksha, equanimity, making space for, for all kinds of experiences. Breathing in and breathing out, I make myself present. I draw myself in from wherever I've been hovering, wherever I've been moving in my awareness, into the body, so that mind and body can be united in the activity of being present, of breathing, And I open my heart space, the space in the center of my body, but also the felt space, a feeling space, an emotional space. I open my heart so that I might be capable 
to receive the experiences of life, the experiences that life offers in this moment on so many levels. I begin with awareness of my body, breathing in and out. I connect with the beauty and the wonder in my body. My body, a beautiful and wonderful miracle, manifesting so completely and complexly. I feel the beauty and wonder in my body. I allow in my heart space myself to feel the beauty of my body. I embrace it. I smile with it. And I let it go. I let it be free. As I take another breath, I begin to focus my awareness on the sickness that is in my body. The ill-being that manifests in my body. I feel it in my cells and I allow it in my heart. I allow a space for this other manifestation of my body, the sickness. I embrace it with my strength and my love. I smile to the sickness in my body. And I let it go. I let it go. Now with the next few breathings, I hold an awareness inside this body, this heart, this mind of the presence of all of my ancestors, all the generations who have come before, of whom I am the transformation and the continuation. And I know that there is a transmission of joy and happiness from my ancestors. I open my heart to feel that. I allow myself to receive the joy and the happiness of my ancestors. I embrace it. I am 
embrace it. I smile to it. I smile through and with it. And I release and let go of the joy and happiness of my ancestors. I let it be. And now I feel also the experience of pain and the wounds of my ancestors. For the pain and wounds that I carry are none other than the pain and wounds of my ancestors. And I allow a space in my heart for this pain. I embrace it with my strength and my compassion. I smile to it. I recognize it. And with a few more breaths, I release it. I let it go. Now I bring myself back into the experience of breath in my body, my mind feeling into the breath, the cells of my body, this present moment. And I call into awareness the whole of the planet, our dear Mother Earth. And I am aware of the awakening, the brightening, the enlightening, and the renewal and the life of Mother Earth, the whole planet. I feel her and I allow that awakening in me to be a part of me. I embrace it. I smile with it. I let Mother Earth's deep awakening shape the position of my body, the smile on my lips. And I let it go, I let it be. And I turn my awareness from the great awakening of Mother Earth, also to 
the immense despair and suffering of all the living beings who are collectively the planet, our Mother Earth. I allow a space in my heart for this despair I embrace it with strength and love, with compassion. And I smile with this despair. I am with it, holding it, caring for it. and I let it go. I release and let it be. I have space within me for joy to be felt and nourished. I have space within me for suffering to be held and understood. I have capacity. My breathing is the breathing of all of my ancestors, of my teachers, of my sangha, my community. my open heart full of space and compassion is that of my ancestors, my teachers, my community. I feel that space so stable, so grounded, so free. And I am open and flowing like a river of life, holding within my arms the beginnings and the ends, the ups and the downs, learning as I flow, learning, healing as we flow, healing. Please feel free to relax uh, out of a sitting position if you if you need to or want to.
Dear friends, there are three characteristics of the Dharma. The Dharma is a very special set of teachings that comes to life in each of us and around each of us when we practice. The first characteristic of the Dharma is that it is available right here, right now. You don't have to go anywhere special. You don't have to do anything in particular. It has to do with this moment of life and connecting with this moment of life. In our practice, we often say things like present moment, a wonderful moment. Right? That is speaking to this characteristic of the Dharma, that it is available here and now. The living Dharma, the way in which ordinary awareness creates an experience of something sacred, something wonderful, right? Like brushing your teeth, or eating an apple, or feeling the sun on your cheek, or listening with an open heart and kindness to a dear friend, right? How all of these very ordinary things can be so sacred and so wonderful, present moment, wonderful moment. It's the first characteristic of the Dharma. The second characteristic of the Dharma is that it is not a matter of time. <laughs> so this has a couple of different meanings. For me, the contemplation that we've been doing about how ancestors are within us and our descendants are also within us in the sense of our continuation, the future of the world and of humanity is produced right through our, our very lives in this moment, whether it's literally in our children uh, uh, or, or through the results of our actions, right? The way we think and speak and move in the world is constantly rippling out, forward, creating a future, uh, uh, creating a future present moment, if you will, uh, right? But it's all born out of that. It's not a matter of time. Our, and so we can, we can see how in this moment all of the past is there and also the germination of all of the future is there. Right? It's not a matter of time. Continuation and transformation are words that describe this uh, characteristic of the Dharma, not a matter of time. But it also has this uh, meaning of that our realization is instantaneous, right? Enlightenment is not something you're going to get somewhere in the future. Your awakening is not something you are going to attain out there. Your happiness is not something to look for in finally attaining X, Y, and Z conditions in your life. The realization is instantaneous. Awakening is, is right here and right now. And there's this beautiful expression in the... the um, It's, I think it's the Four Establishments of Mindfulness, or maybe it's Anapanasati. It's in one of those discourses. At the end of it, <laughs> uh, the Buddha uh, is summarizing the teaching, and he says something like, uh, Dear friends, 
these teachings on establishing mindfulness in your life and practicing mindfulness of breathing and are they're they're so wonderful that uh, a practitioner only needs to practice them for uh, like uh, I forget how does it start to say seven seven lifetimes or something like that <laughs> but he starts with this big number seven something seven years practice for seven years and you'll experience the highest fruit of this and then the next sentence is oh I'm just kidding you really only need to practice for seven months and then and then you'll have realized this teaching ah, I got you again I'm really only talking about seven weeks right and he whittles it down to seven days right and for me this is an expression of um, akalika the, the not a matter of time right that our awakening is is uh, is really the, the awakening we have in this moment right and that we may need seven days of thorough and deep practice but that's 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 that like if you stay for seven days continuously with this practice that's that right like that's that's the framework I'm not telling you to go do that I'm saying this is the, the concept is our awakening is now right it's not a matter of getting somewhere else it's a matter of sort of releasing everything else so that the awakening which is inherent which is already there can reveal itself mm. The wave doesn't have to go anywhere to become water. She already is water. Right? And all the ups and downs of our life, we pay so much attention to them, but they're like the waves on the surface. But we are always water. And all the waves are water. And it's vast and deep. And I don't have to go anywhere as a wave to become water. I am water Right. Our awakening and our our enlightenment are not a matter of time. They're already here. It's the second characteristic. I know the mind is probably trying to figure that one out, but don't it's it's it cannot be grasped. <laughs> Remember the grasping energy is not gonna get us there. It's the letting go energy that gets us there. Hmm. The third characteristic of the Dharma is that the Dharma is for each of us to see for ourselves, for each to see for themselves, each to experience themselves. Mm. That is because that water is in each wave, right? It's not just in a select few and you have to get enough cred to be able to get it. <laughs> it's in all the waves. The Dharma lives in the world. It lives in each of us. It is the spiritual life, right? And the daily life that come together as one, right? Our daily life and our spiritual life, the ups, oops, the ups and downs of our daily life and the deep truths of who we are, they're, they're together, right? So each of us can experience that for ourselves. It's not caught in, in a set of rules or dogmas, it's not something we have to go out and attain. Uh, <laughs> we are bright, radiant uh, consciousness already. You know, that's already that's already what we are in this moment. All right, so.
those of you that didn't take notes, I'm going to hold this one up too, right? Bum. Okay, on the record. The characteristics of the Dharma. One, two, three. Here and now, not a matter of time for each to see for themselves. It's so nice to be able to practice together. I hope that you're able to experience that fullness of the transformation and continuation. Mm. It's really powerful. It's really powerful. You might be tempted to uh, go into the details of the story of the transmission you've received, and that's, that's fine. That's fine. We can learn a lot. Uh, about uh, our family and about our family's histories and all that to, to help support us in our work of understanding who we are. But we don't have to because all of that is already in us. And by looking deeply into the life that we're experiencing right now, we are looking deeply into the current manifestation of our ancestors. Right? It's all right here. Mm. And the difference between my breath and the breath of my parents and grandparents doesn't exist, actually. Right? The difference between the steps that I take in mindfulness and the steps that Tai takes in mindfulness is, is always been in my steps, even before he passed away. Right? So my teacher, my ancestors, they are very alive for me, very much a part of, of my experience in my life. And that means that when I say my and I say mine, about me, my, and mine, I'm not saying it in a small way. I'm saying it with that understanding as a base, that I am that continuation and that transformation. Mm. We condition ourselves to feel that we are separate and isolated. And through the practice, we condition ourselves differently to notice and to be aware of the deep connections and transmissions. And then the boundaries disappear. Mm. Thank you for practicing together. The space in our hearts is bringing a lot of relief to the whole world. Uh, if there was a way to catch an image of that, it would be really fun, right? To be able to somehow show, I don't know, maybe there's an, an artistic expression somewhere of that, but just to take a snapshot of like all the open, spacious, deeply present, compassionate hearts on a retreat together, right? And what that means for the, the experience of the whole planet, right? We're not just doing this in our own little rooms, in our own little towns, right? This is, we are uh, a part of our Mother Earth. And she's expressing her, her wisdom and her healing through us. We're expressing it 
for her, with her. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>